Well, good morning. How are you guys doing this morning? Good. Summer's been good to you so far? Yeah? Don't all tell me at once. It's good. Uh, my name's Dave Lewis. I'm the community pastor here at Bayview Glen Church, and uh, just so, so excited to, I don't, I don't get to do this very often, so just excited to actually be able to preach um, this morning. And uh, so before I jump into things, I just want to bow in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for your presence to us. Um, Lord, we sang this morning how great you are. And so God, today I just pray that uh, uh, your presence would become real to us. Lord, that we would experience you through, um, well, I mean, Jesus calls himself the bread of life. And God, we pray that we know that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from you. And so God, I pray that you would speak to us today through your word. Uh, In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, if you're new uh, here with us today, you're joining us in our Believe series where we are on a journey through the book of John. And now we've been defining this word believe not as a checklist of propositional statements to which we give mental assent, but we're defining the word believe as act of trust. You see, this is the thing about John, is that John doesn't let us sit in our checklist Christianity where we get to tick the boxes of belief. Yeah, I believe in Jesus, check. Yeah, I believe he rose from the dead, check. You see, if we're going to experience what it means to actively trust Jesus, then we need to move beyond knowing about Jesus and move towards simply knowing Jesus. We all know there's a difference between knowing about someone and really knowing them. My wife and I, we just celebrated our 21st anniversary, which was, uh, which was pretty exciting. And as we, uh, we, oh, thank you. There's a couple claps. 21 years, man. That's like, 21 years with me. That's, uh, that's something to be said. Anyway, um, anyway so my, my wife and I, we, uh, like I said, we were celebrating our anniversary. We were downtown Toronto, and we were eating at a restaurant um, that, that day, and it's got known to the staff that we were actually celebrating our anniversary that day. And so, um, you know, the, one of our waitress, after we had our food and we're, we're almost done our meal, she came up to us and she said, 21 years. What's the secret? You guys want to know? Yeah? All right. Here it is. 21 years of marriage, and here's a secret. That's disgusting, isn't it? It's a dirty glass of orange juice with the last gulp in it. But here's what I know, and why this is the secret to 21 years of marriage is because this is what I know about my wife. I know that if I drink that last gulp of orange juice on her, that I will not see 22 years. All right? I just know that my wife needs this last gulp of orange juice to actually wash down her meal. To her, it gives her a sense of completion. And the reality is, is that I know that about her, and I love that about her, and I accept it. Even though it's super weird and quirky, um, I I, I love that about my wife because I know my wife. You see, John 20, 31 says this, but these are written talking about the stories and all that things that John writes, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You see, the invitation found throughout the book of John is for us to actively get to know Jesus, to understand who he is, to allow ourselves to be shaped by his life, so that as we will find out later in in the gospel, 
Not only will we share in life with Christ, but we will share that life to our neighborhoods and our communities and the world around us. So we are at an interesting part of the book of John. If you guys can remember way back to when we first started the series, Lucas actually broke down the book of John into sections to give us some handles so that we could understand how John has constructed his book in order to actually accomplish his purpose of helping us to know who Jesus is. And so right now we're in the section uh, called Signs and Discourses. Signs and discourses. And what John does in this section of his gospel is he tells us a couple stories about Jesus where he performs some kind of sign or, or does make some kind of action that lets us know about who he is. And then he follows those stories up with an extended discourse that explains in detail the identity of Jesus. So for example, in chapter 2, we find the stories of water into wine. When Jesus, and when Jesus clears the temple. And then we see these stories followed up by the discourse in chapter 3 where Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus. And so as we move through this section in John, one of the questions that we can ask ourselves is, what is John telling me regarding who Jesus is? You see, the question isn't, what is John telling me about Jesus? But it's, what is John telling me regarding who Jesus is? What is his character? What is, what is his priorities? What's close to his heart? Where is his passion? You see, over the last few weeks, Kevin preached on the miracle stories of the feeding of the 5,000 and walking on the water, which is followed uh, by the discourse that we are going to look at today, found in John chapter 6, verse 22 to 59. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can, uh, you can take those out and you can turn to John chapter 6, verse, verses 29 to 59, uh, 21, sorry, 22 to 59. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, there's a seat back in front of you or you can pull it up on your device. All I ask is that if you do use your device, that you make sure that it's on silent because uh, I get distracted really easy by notifications and bings and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, um, so anyway... Um, we're not going to read through the entire passage uh, this morning. We're going to kind of take it uh, in chunks. Uh, the reason for that is because it's, it, it, it is a long passage. But what I want you guys to see here is that what John is trying to get at is what he's telling us about who Jesus is, he, uh, is, is simply this. He's telling us that this passage of Scripture is about the identity and the mission of Jesus. What John chapter 6 is about is about the identity and mission of of Jesus. So as we start, start talking about his identity, as we look at the scripture starting in verse 25, what we see here is that the crowd totally missed the boat when it came to understanding Jesus' identity. They totally missed the boat when it comes to understanding Jesus' identity. Here we go, at, starting at uh, verse 25. You see, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So if you remember when Kevin was talking about the, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, what had happened was that, uh, you know, they had all gathered at, at Bethsaida, and that's where Jesus had fed them, and then uh, they all went home that night, and the disciples, they got it, Jesus kind of, you know, sl uh, slunk into the crowd because they were trying to make him king, and the disciples, what they did when Jesus left is they left too, and they got in a boat, and they went across the other side of the river to, or the other side of the lake, sorry, to a town called Capernaum. And so, um, so the thing is, is that the, the people, when they came back the next day, they were like, hey, what happened? There was a boat here. Now it's gone. The disciples must have taken off. But where's Jesus? 
And so they started this search for him. They started to try to find out where he was. And so that's why we get this, uh, where they come here is uh, on verse 25, they say, hey, oh, Rabbi, oh, fancy meeting you here. It's like they were looking for him, but they tried to make it sound like they weren't, you know, it was kind of a surprise to them. But you see, the the interesting thing about this is that Jesus doesn't do the small talk thing. He doesn't say, oh, hey, it's so great to see you. How how was your trip across the lake? Um, You know, he just totally cuts straight to the point, and he says this. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are not seeking me because you saw, you're not seeking me because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. See, what Jesus says is that the only reason why you're looking at me or why you're looking for me is because I filled your belly. And so they fail to understand. The crowd fails to understand the miracle. They fail to understand what Jesus was actually doing when he fed the 5,000. You see, it's kind of hard to blame the crowd, though, because sometimes an empty empty stomach and the hope of a free meal kind of trump the obvious. But for the perceptive Jew, the feeding of the 5,000 and the provision of bread in the wilderness was more than just a free meal. It was a sign. It was a sign that a new exodus was taking place right in front of them and that Jesus was leading it. It was an exodus out of the captivity of sin and death and into the promise of eternal life. And they continue by saying this. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do? that we may see and believe you. Jesus had already done a sign, but here they are asking him for another one. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who, or that which, comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You see, what we discover is that not only did they fail to see Jesus' identity wrapped up in the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, but they actually failed to understand where this bread even comes from. You see, the Jews wrongly state that how Moses fed them in the desert, that he was the one that actually gave them their food in the wilderness. And Jesus quickly corrects them and lets them know that the true bread that came, that the true bread came from his father. But there's something else that's going on here that is easy for us to miss. You see, as you're reading through the book of John, John is a master at putting double meanings into his text. And so when you're reading it, you really have to be mindful of, uh, of, of all the things that he's actually referring to. And so you see, what John is, is actually disguising for us in this text, or the extra meaning that he's putting in here, is that the Jews referred to the Torah. Okay, so the law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, they referred to them as manna, or the true bread from heaven. It was the word of God, the life-sustaining spiritual nourishment that kept 
both their faith and their hope alive. And so what Jesus appears to be doing in this passage of Scripture is picking up on the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 8, 3, where he says this, and he humbled you, this is Moses speaking to the people of Israel, he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make, uh, he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. See, what Jesus is saying very subtly here is that he is the embodiment of the Torah. He is God's word made flesh. This is like a repeat of John chapter 1 verse 14 where it says, The word became flesh, and I love how the message says it moves into our neighborhood. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. God's word became physically present in the flesh. This is something that the crowd will clue into later, but their response to what Jesus says only reveals that they really have no clue what it is that Jesus is up to, because here's their response. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Now we might think, okay, so they're asking for this this, this, the, the, this real bread, this true bread from heaven, but actually uh, scholars will tell you that what it is, they're, just, they're asking for like a, a supersize of their combo. They're asking for a bread upgrade. They want like this eternal bread or this bread that just continually falls from heaven where they don't have to actually go out for another meal. They can just come back to the spot because there's going to keep, bre- uh, bread is going to keep falling down from them. And so they're trying to get this unending supply of bread while Jesus is trying to totally change their diet. From food that perishes to that which lasts. You see, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread. There you go. See, I am the bread of heaven. All of a sudden they clue in. Wow. This is what Jesus is saying is that he is the word of of God. I am the bread that came down from heaven. And so what happens is they actually fail to accept the meaning of the bread. You see, these two words right here, I am, seem to awaken the crowd to the reality of who Jesus is claiming to be. Because these are the words that God used to reveal himself to Moses at the burning bush. He said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham. Couple these words with what Jesus says in the verses before about being the word of God and his identity becomes crystal clear. He's telling the people that he's not a prophet like Moses or just some miracle worker in the desert. Who he is is God incarnate, God in the flesh. And you would think that the crowd would be like amazed and believe in him and I don't know, start playing some worship tunes or something. But instead of recognizing the God of the universe right in their midst, they grumble. Instead of taking him up on his offer to believe, they start fighting amongst themselves. You see, Jesus is trying to get them to grapple with his identity, to get them beyond themselves and their physical needs so that they can experience the fullness of who he is. They are so focused on getting their daily bread, on asking, what's God going to do for me? That they miss their invitation into the presence of God. You see, sometimes... 
the God that is, is not the God that we want. Sometimes the God that is is sometimes is not, or sometimes the God that is is not the God that we want. Sometimes we don't want a God who promises to be present to us. I mean, it's nice, right? God being present to us. But what we really want is a God who can fix things for us. A God who can look after our financial problems or our health issues or our broken relationships or get rid of our painful circumstances. We just want a God who can take care of it, who can fix it, who can kind of make it go away. And you know how I know that that's what we want sometimes? It's because that's exactly what I want sometimes. You see, this, this was actually revealed to me when I was uh, over with some of our, uh, the people from our church who are on our, our Alpha lead team when we were in, uh, in the UK. And um, I, we were at the Global Alpha Leadership Conference, and one of the things that we got to do was to go to Holy Trinity Brompton Church, which is like the birthplace of Alpha. And uh, when we went there, I saw that they had this healing room. And I was kind of like, wow, what's, I wonder what the healing room is about. And there was something inside me that kind of drew me to that room. I just felt like I needed God to touch me somehow. I needed healing from something because I felt like there was this disconnect between him and I. And so as I opened the door to the healing room and I walked in and there were lots of things going on there that kind of tripped the weird meter for me. But the reality is, is that as I made my way to um, the person who was going to pray for me, they started to ask me questions. And I didn't, like I said, I didn't know exactly what it is that I needed God to heal me from, but as I started to share my story with him and I started to kind of open up to this guy who was going to pray for me and I talked about the pain of my circumstances and all this kind of stuff, he said to me, have you ever imagined God present to you in that time? Have you ever imagined God present to you at that time? The reality is, is that I, I hadn't. You know, in fact, I, I couldn't imagine that God was present to me in the midst of my brokenness. In fact, I wasn't even sure if I wanted God to be present to me in the midst of those circumstances. Because I was just so angry. I was just so angry with him. All I wanted him to do was to take the pain away. That's all I wanted. But God doesn't always do that, does he? Instead, he offers us the gift of himself and the promise of his eternal presence. You see, Jesus, as the bread of life, invites us to consume him and taste and see that the Lord is good. He invites us to be present to him as he is present to us. So how, how can we do that? How, how can we take God up on his invitation of his presence? How can we actually practice being in the presence of God? I've uh, got four ideas that, that I want to share with you that we can use to practice the presence of God. But before I get to them, I, I just want to say this. You know, a lot of times when we talk about how do we, you know, practice the presence of God, we talk about, well, we should read our Bibles more and we should pray more. And I don't, those are good things. So don't hear me saying that those are not things we should do to actually, uh, you know, uh, connect with God. But what I am saying is this, is that sometimes those things 
that we do, the Bible reading and the prayer, they're limited to parts of our day. We do it in the morning or we do it at night and we you know, tuck our Bibles in our side, our side tables and, uh, and they kind of stay there. What, what I want to do is give you some ideas that will help us engage in a, in a way that recognizes that God is constantly present to us. He's constantly there for us. He's as close as our breath. And so here's, uh, here's four things, and I'll just go through them fairly quickly here. The first day is to begin your day with intentionality. Begin your day with intentionality. It actually is proven psychologically that if we have a morning routine, it's better for us in, in terms of relieving stress, and so we're not rushing around. But my, my thing is, is to start your day intentionally with God. One of the things my kids used to do when we moved from Montreal to Prince George, B.C., it was a bit of a traumatic move for our family, and... Um, so uh, our kids were having some issues with school, and so every day my wife would pack them in the van, and as they were on their way to school, they would hit this certain stoplight, and at that certain stoplight, this was the prayer. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. God, help me be glad. God, this is the day that you have given me. Use me to bring glory to your name. So start your day with intentionality. Uh, number two, turn compliments into praise, or uh, sorry, turn complaints into praise, not compliments. Compliments are praise. Turn complaints into praise. You see, when you find yourself complaining, when, you know, complaining kind of has a cycle to it, right? And so when we find ourselves complaining, the only way to kind of jump off that train is to actually train ourselves to praise instead. And so it's going to take discipline. But the reality is, is that instead of what's focusing uh, on what's wrong in our situation, to actually say, man, is there anything I can be grateful for? Is there anything I can be grateful for? We'll turn, we can turn suffering into surrender. That's number three. You know, there is nothing that knocks us down more than a prolonged, uh, a prolonged season of intense suffering. And when I walk through the years of my wife's physical illness, I wasted a lot of time, like I said, being angry with God. Wasted a lot of time. When what I could have been doing was actually communicating with him. I actually could have been leaning into him and allowing him to heal me instead of pushing him away. So to turn suffering into surrender. And then number four is turn the mundane into a holy moment. I mean, how many of us are never bored at our jobs? Let me see. Wow. None. That is amazing. Oh, somebody's trying to raise their hand there. You're the only one. Everybody has moments, of day, uh, moments in their day when they're totally bored, and so sometimes all we want to do is just get through it, right? We just want to get it done and get home. But what I'm saying to you is that know that God is present to you in the mundane. Know that he's present to you in the boring, and it's an, actually an opportunity for us to say, God, you know, I got actually nothing else to do. What is it you want to say to me? And to go from there. These are just a, a, a couple of suggestions to help us get started in practicing God's presence as we seek to place our active trust in Jesus, the bread of life. Well, I talked about that John is all about trying to introduce us to the identity of Jesus to help us understand who he is, but in this passage of scripture, John also talks to us about the mission of Jesus. What, what are his passions? What's he actually trying to do in the world? And so we're gonna jump ahead to verse 48 here uh, in, in the passage that's we're, that we're looking at this morning. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. 
If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And this is where it starts to get really weird. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Now after reading this, you might be thinking that the mission of Jesus has actually something to do with cannibalism. There's a lot of talk about eating flesh and drinking blood. Uh, in fact, um, <laughs> the Romans... Uh, the Romans were actually accused the early church of actually practicing cannibalism. Here, I got a little, a little uh, quote from a dialogue between uh, two, uh, two people that lived in ancient Rome, and one is Cassilius, this is, uh, Cassilius the Pagan. All right, that's his full name, Cassilius the Pagan. And then we got Octavian the Christian. So the Pagan starts off like this, you Christians are the worst ever to affect the world. You deserve every punishment you get. Nobody likes you. It would be better if you and your Jesus had never been born. We hear that you are all cannibals, that you eat the flesh of your children in your sacred meetings. And Octavius the Christian never so calmly says, oh, the story is probably based on reports that we share together a meal of the body and the blood of Christ. That we do. But it is not human flesh we eat. It is bread and wine we consecrate to commemorate the Lord's death. You know, I don't have a lot of time to go into this passage of Scripture in a lot of detail. But what I do, I want to say uh, two things that kind of jump out at me from this text regarding the mission of Jesus. And the first one is this, is that Jesus is sent into the world to bring what is dead to life. Jesus is sent into the world to bring what is dead to life. You see, it is through Jesus that eternal life actually comes into the world. But here's the thing. This eternal life is not just something that we experience, as Jesus says, through resurrection on the last day. It is something that those of us who have put our active trust in Jesus experience in the present. We experience eternity in the here and now. Our relationship with Jesus doesn't go on hiatus after we die. It starts in the here and now and it continues on into the future. But like all the imagery of flesh and blood suggests, eternal life comes into the world ironically through the death of Jesus. It is for this very reason that he was sent down from heaven so that through giving his flesh for the world, new life becomes possible. So here's the second thing about the mission of Jesus is that it's an invitation to join him in bringing life to the world. It's an invitation to join him in bringing life to the world. You see, this is an implication of us abiding in Christ. Uh, 
um, verse 56 actually talks about if we drink his flesh and, uh, or sorry, eat his flesh and drink his blood, that he abides in us and us in him. Our char- when we abide in Christ, our character becomes like him. His priorities become our priorities. His mission becomes our mission. So much so to the point where in John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus says to his disciples, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. You see, just as Jesus was sent into the world to bring life to what was dead, he now invites us to partner with him in his mission of bringing life into the world. You see, as we abide with Christ, we bring his life-giving presence with us wherever we go. This is something that I experienced when I was a youth pastor uh, back in Vermilion, Alberta. I was 26 at the time, so it was like last year. And... um, And, and my wife and I were uh, in the hospital, actually, because my wife was pregnant with our second child, and, uh, you know, she was having uh, a bit of complications, and so we're, we're at the hospital and, and kind of waiting for the doctor to come in and see us when all of a sudden a nurse comes up and knocks on our door. And she says, uh, says to me, Dave, I need you to come down to the emergency room for a second. We have a bit of a situation. And I was like, oh, man, here I thought she was coming to the room to bust me for taking my wife on a wheelchair ride around the hospital when she was supposed to be in her bed. But I, I show up to the emergency uh, room there, and there was nothing that prepared me for what I saw. Because what, what I saw was about 800 high school students that had come into the emergency room, and there were so many of them that they actually spilled out onto the lawn, and there were students everywhere. And I was like, what happened? And what I found out what happened was that there was a party that night and that four girls were in a truck when the driver happened to be drunk and the, she lost control of the, of the vehicle and the truck rolled about 10 times and two of the girls were ejected and both of them were killed. And then uh, the other, uh, and then there were the two inside the truck, um, you know, managed to live. One of the girls that was killed was actually a girl from the youth group that I was a youth pastor of. But the doctor, he met me in the emergency ward and he pulled me into, uh, into this, this side room where, where there was a family that he wanted me to attend to. And the reason why he wanted me to come into that room was because of this, that they still hadn't identified two of the girls. One of the girls was still alive, the other one had, had died. And the thing is that this family knew both of the girls. And so they asked one of the, the oldest son if he would... Um, actually come out and identify um, one of the bodies that they had uh, in, in a room. And so here's the situation. This, he was like 18. Here's what he was walking into. He was walking into a room to identify a body that he knew was either his sister or his girlfriend. And so he walks into the room, and I will never forget when he came back uh, to the room that I was in with his family because he just said two words, it's her meaning that the person that had died was their sister. And the room just exploded. One of the the boys, the brothers just went off and it was throwing things around the room and it was crazy, it was like pandemonium. And this is where, uh, (laughs) you know, the doctor said, oh, I brought Pastor Dave in because he's experienced with these things. (laughs) No, 
I mean, I, have ex- I had experience with that then as, about as much as experience you guys have with a situation like that. And so I didn't know what to do. I mean, you know, what, what's a pastor do in that situation? I started thinking, well, what would any of us do in that situation? And the only thing I thought I could do was just to pray. And I don't even know what I prayed. I don't remember any of the words that I said. I don't think that matters. Because what happened when I prayed was that the presence of God just came into that space. Like something I've never experienced in my life before. It was like, it was palpable. It was like I could almost touch it. It was amazing. And the chaos of that situation was subdued as God's presence was there with us. The family was able to actually gather themselves around a table and they were actually able to talk through kind of what their plan was and how they were going to let people know. It was amazing to me to see how God was already at work in that situation, bringing life to where there was death. It was amazing. As I was thinking about how we were going to kind of end things today, I was thinking about giving you guys some action steps. Some action steps about how we could actually practically bring God's life-giving presence with us into the world. And then it hit me. It's summer. And I don't know what your summer represents to you, but for me, it's a time to totally slow down, a time to step into a different rhythm, a time for me to kind of reflect on life and, and get ready for a, what's going, always a, a crazy fall. And so instead of giving you guys some action items that you probably aren't going to do anyway, uh, what I want to leave you with are six questions. Six questions that I think are helpful as we seek to partner with Jesus on his mission to bring life into the world. So these are six questions that uh, I I would like you guys to reflect on and to think about, you know, this summer. So here we go. Number one is, how am I loving others? How am I loving others? Now, this might seem like a weird question because, I mean, we are with people all the time that we love, but here's the reality of of, of how, as Christians, we define love. Love is sacrificial. Love is sacrificial. And so um, the question here is, have we taken time to recently meet the needs of others, even if our love comes at a cost? Even if it costs us? something. So how are we loving others? How am I loving others? Am I loving people sacrificially? Question two, how am I paying attention to the least of these? How am I paying attention to the least of you? See, it's, it's really easy for us to pay attention to those who are like us. It's really easy to eat with those who are like us. What's really hard is for us to actually live and, and, and notice those who are different than us. You see, if we have if we are privileged enough to have a life that reflects the results of a solid education, you know, a good, good health, strong relationships, comfortable shelter, and sufficient income, then how can we show hospitality to the least of these? How do we show hospitality to the least of these? How am I paying attention to and loving the weaker members in my neighborhood, at my workplace, in my world? Well, question three is, what faith conversations am I having 
What faith conversations am I having? You see, being on mission means that we get to connect, uh, we get to connect God to matters of life. We get, get to connect faith and life together here. It means thinking about you know, what else might exist beyond us in our world and helping people connect with our creator. And so how can we incorporate faith elements into our conversations when we have op- opportunities? Every conversation, there's an opportunity to actually weave the story of the gospel there. So how or what faith conversations are you having? Number four, this is my favorite. Who am I eating with? All right, who am I eating with? You see, sharing food around the table with others helps us to prioritize community. And as we alternate between playing host and guest, we learn how to share life and build relationships with people that we might otherwise, are not otherwise engage with. If we are eating with people who are always similar to us, then maybe it's time that we invite some different people to our table so that we can uh, learn how to mutually respect one another and take steps to embrace others' differences. So who am I eating with? Question five, how is God's life showing up in my neighborhood and workplace? How is God's life showing up in my neighborhood and workplace? You see, here's the thing. We talk about God being present always to us. I believe that God is at work and he's on mission and that we should be able to actually find him on mission in our world. We should be able to see what he's doing in our neighborhoods, but we have to be attentive to it. We have to be looking for it. And so as you walk around your neighborhood or as you're at work, think about how, how are you seeing the life that God brings come into the world? Are you joining with others who have a similar vision to bring that life there? I'm not going to say it, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Join a life group? I just said it. Lucas is going to say it later. Join a life group, I mean, this is what we're all about, right? We want to bring life to the neighborhoods that God has placed us in. Question six, am I inviting people to join me? You see, as we work with others to grow in this vision of what it means to bring life to our neighborhoods and workplaces by being God's faithful presence, we need to invite people to join with us. And so the the follow-up question is, who am I asking to walk with me on the road of bringing life to what is dead in my neighborhood and my workplace? Who am I inviting, or who is walking with me on the road of bringing life to what is dead in my neighborhood or workplace? Six questions that I'm hoping you'll take the time to reflect on this summer as you think about how you can be God's faithful presence, how you can be, or how you can bring life to the the neighborhood and the places that you actually um, hang out in. You know, as we close our service this morning, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and to lead us in a song that they taught us last week. It's called Give Thanks to God. Give Thanks to God. And it's a bit of a different song. It's a song that actually we get to engage in. There's a, a call and a response to it. And I thought it was a fitting way to bring this passage of scripture to a close because most scholars will tell you that this particular passage, John chapter 6, um, kind of help shape or help give shape to the practice of the Lord's Supper, or as it's known in other churches, the Eucharist, which is a meal of thanksgiving. So as the worship team comes and as they join us, or as they lead us in this song, giving thanks to God, why don't we stand together and sing with them?